calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 130. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as thee. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week, Trifecta Special 9. The Trifecta is an occasional flash fiction extravaganza that we run with three different short stories by three different authors, read by three different readers. The theme of Trifecta 9 is Mirror, Mirror on the Wall, stories of profound disillusionment. Gonna start out with a story read by yours truly, called Dinosaur, by Bruce Holland Rogers. Bruce has a home base in Eugene, Oregon, the tie-dye capital of the world. But until July of 2008, he's been living in London, England. His fiction is all over the literary map. Some of it's SF, some of it's fantasy, some of it's even literary. He's written mysteries, experimental fiction, and work that's hard to label, including a story that we ran not too long ago here on the Drabblecast called Little Brother TM. So, without further ado, Dinosaur by Bruce Holland Rogers. When he was very young, he waved his arms, gnashed the teeth of his massive jaws, and tromped around the house so that the dishes trembled in the china cabinet. Oh, for goodness sake, his mother said. You are not a dinosaur. You are a human being. Since he was not a dinosaur, he thought for a time that he might be a pirate. Oh, seriously his father said at some point. What do you want to be? A fireman, then, or a policeman, or a soldier, some kind of hero. But in high school, they gave him tests and told him that he was very good with numbers. Perhaps he would like to be a math teacher. That was respectable. Or a tax accountant. He could make a lot of money doing that. It seemed a good idea to make money. 
what with falling in love and thinking about raising a family. So he was a tax accountant, even though he sometimes regretted that it made him, well, small. And he felt even smaller when he was no longer a tax accountant, but a retired tax accountant. Still worse, a retired tax accountant who forgot things. He forgot to take the garbage to the curb, forgot to take his pill, forgot to turn his hearing aid back on. Every day it seemed he'd forgotten more things, important things, like which one of his children lived in San Francisco and which of his children were married or divorced. Then, one day, when he was out for a walk by the lake, he forgot what his mother had told him. He forgot that he was not a dinosaur. He stood, blinking his dinosaur eyes in the bright sunlight, feeling the familiar warmth on his dinosaur skin, watching dragonflies flitting among the horsetails at the water's edge. Our next author, sandwiched between two very fine Bruces, is writer Steve Calvert, bringing us a great little story called Monster Talk. Steve usually writes horror fiction, but sometimes his sense of humor gets the better of him, and, as in this case, he ends up writing a lighter tale than he intended. Steve's publishing credits include Necrography, Necrotic Tissue, The Rose and Thorn Literary Design, Arkham Tales, and Hub Magazine. A more complete list of his work can be found at his website, steve-calvert.co.uk. The story is read to you by writer and podcast novelist Dave Thompson, the man behind the really fun superhero, sorta, podcast novel, The Unbelievable Origin of Super Spiff and the Toothpick Kid, which you can hook up with via the links in our show notes. There, you'll also see a link to his blog, which you can peruse if you'd like, at kryler.livejournal.com. Dave's spiritual noir-style stories can be found at Pseudopod, Apex, Variant Frequencies, and also at Hub. And let me tell you, they're good stuff. So, here we go. Monster Talk by Steve Calvert. Yeah, okay, everyone listens to the kid side of it, but have you ever wondered what it's like to actually be a monster in the closet? It's not much fun, I can tell you. One minute, you are just lurking there, in your closet doing no freaking harm to anybody, and the next thing you know some kid has got his eyes trained on the crack in your door and is bawling his little head off. Mom, Dad, come quick, there's a monster in my closet. Talk about a tattletale. Then the kids' freaking parents come in, don't they? And if they don't, well, that little nuisance will just keep on bawling his head off until they do. Hell, the kid will bawl his head off until he has half the freaking neighborhood standing in his bedroom if he has to. Monster! Monster! Yeesh. Blow it out your ass, kid. Then when the parents come in, with or without the representatives of the local neighborhood watch schemes, they don't believe in monsters anyway, do they? But they have to take a quick look into the closet just to keep the kid happy. 
and that means that the poor old monster in the closet has to work twice as hard to stay invisible. Have you any idea how much energy it takes to stay invisible when someone is actually looking to see if you're there? No, I bet you don't. Well, it takes a lot, and afterwards, it leaves you feeling pretty drained, I can tell you. And why, I ask you, what's it all about? Just some big mouth kid who wants to get all territorial about his closet. Grow up, kid. Get a life and stop believing in us, will you? Give us all a rest. You, me, the Mon Pond, the neighbors as well. Where else are we supposed to go anyway? It's a big, bad old world out there, and it can get pretty cold at night. Cold through the day, too, sometimes. So what do we do? We hide in the closet. We're not bothering anyone. It isn't us who steal your socks, you know. Word up! You humans are just careless, that's all. Look under your beds and behind your cupboards. Your socks will all turn up. You just see if they don't. In fact, pull out your drawers and check underneath them. On the floor, you'll find enough socks to keep you going for months. Monster's honor. Yeah, okay, fair comment. We could go and live in the parents' closets. They don't believe in us anyway, and so no problem there unless the kid gets them looking. The thing is, though, there are some pretty strange things in a lot of adult closets, and it can be real embarrassing when you find some of them. I nearly had a heart attack once when I looked in one woman's closet. My own fault. I should have known better. There was this... thing hidden on one of the shelves in there, and swear to God... Oh, never mind. Gave me a shock for a moment, though, I can tell you. I thought the freaking thing was real until I saw the speed control. Damn, my heart was racing for a while after that. Then there was this time when this woman's husband came home early from work, and I had to spend over half a freaking hour sharing closet space with an insurance salesman from Idaho who wore yellow polka dot boxer shorts. Yellow freaking polka dots. Who knows what goes on in the mind of a man who wears underpants like that. Ask any monster and they'll tell you the same. Stick to the kids' closets. It's safer. Clothes and toys. You can't go wrong with clothes and toys. Anyway, I'm glad I got all of this off my green hairy chest. I think I just need to get everything out in the open. Vent my spleen. Put my side across. So listen, kids. Stop the screaming, okay? And give a monster a break. Because if you don't... I'm gonna have to eat you. Who knows what goes on in the minds of a man who wears underwear like that? New favorite quote. Finally, we bring you another story from the Accursed Wives series by Bruce Boston called The Curse of the Android's Wife. Bruce's work has appeared in hundreds of publications, including Asimov's Amazing Stories, Realms of Fantasy, Strange Horizons, Weird Tales, The Pedestal Magazine, Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, and the Nebula Awards Showcase, and received a number of awards, most notably the Pushcart Prize, the Asimov's Reader's Award, and the Bram Stoker Award. He holds the distinctions of having appeared in more issues of Asimov's and Strange Horizons than any other author, and of coining the word cybertext. Well, I'll be darned. The story is read to you by Julie Hoverson, writer, voice actress, editor, and producer of the How the Heck Haven't Heard of This Place Yet, It's So Awesome, 19 Nocturne Boulevard podcast. It's an audio drama anthology series presenting half-hour tales of terror, suspense, humor, and madness in the grand tradition of such classic radio shows as Lights Out, Quiet Please, and more recent TV shows like The Twilight Zone and Tales from the Crypt. We'll run a promo of the show right for the story. 
I think you should check it out. So, on with the show. The Curse of the Android's Wife by Bruce Boston. He is a state-of-the-art creation. No assembly line model for her. Not even top of the line, but the finest unit her family's price-is-no-object wealth can afford. A handcrafted simulacrum of man, tailored to meet her exact physical specifications, programmed to complement the sum of her profiles, both mental and emotional. He is the perfect replica of Homo sapiens superioris, as he thinks and moves and breathes in the midst of the imperfect 24th century as exact an imitation of contemporary human life as the science of homotronics can fashion. And most important of all, he is her perfect partner in passion, as tender or brutal as her mood might swing. He has been geared and sprocketed to exorcise her chronic bouts of boredom, to claim hunger when her belly growls, to grow weary and rest beside her whenever she yawns and her thoughts begin to fade. He has been designed to age gracefully, as she must someday age, despite the costly anti-agathics with which she pretends to keep time at bay. Replicated down to the finest details of musculature and flesh, down to the microscopic minutiae of follicles and pores. Still, he is no more perfect than a real man might be. Slight imperfections, the stray lock of hair that falls across his brow, a gibbous mole on the inside of his right forearm, the nearly imperceptible bump, visible only from a certain angle, that throws his otherwise perfect nose fetchingly off kilter, make his false humanity all the more persuasive, not only to her sense of sight or touch, but to all of her perceptions. She notices that after a particularly strenuous bout of lovemaking, he appears to sleep more soundly, the faintest of snores bubbling from his tender mouth. She learns that like most men, his pride can be wounded, his ego bruised, or at least he can feign such petty emotional traumas with the same faultless authenticity with which he feigns existence itself. And she soon discovers that like all men, when she cuts him, he will bleed. He is her perfect companion at rest or at play, on earth or abroad. And whenever they travel beyond the system and she can leave behind the wagging tongues of her so-called friends, the whispers and knowing glances, the gossip, real or imagined, that plagues her night and day, there is not a solitary soul who ever suspects he is anything more or less than what he appears to be. A devoted husband, a man completely and helplessly in love with his wife. Even if she is something of a shrew, even when she is clearly a violent, drunken bitch, and whenever she grows tired of his ever-solicitous perfection, though this has happened only twice, she need merely depress the correct sequence of buttons concealed along the vertebrae of his spine, and he stands immobile before her, helplessly at rest, stone still and sculptured as a statue. And in the momentary silence that ensues, and it was only for the barest of moments each time, 
as his flesh grows chill beneath her touch, chill and strange as the cool blue light of an alien moon falling through the oblate windows of their spacious alien suite, cold and indifferent as the vacuum beyond the cabin of her private yacht as it wends its way between the stars at speeds beyond her comprehension. She is the one who becomes the solitary soul who sees him for no more or less than what he is. A mannequin, a machine, a would-be man no deeper than his skin, a cleverly constructed mirror, a surface designed for the reflection of her wants and her needs. Yet for her, and this she also sees clearly if only for the barest moment and a single frightening moment once again, the surface of things has become their sum. Fumbling in panic along his spine both times, her hands at first seem numb and awkward as she reactivates him, as she fiercely embraces his warming flesh. Her lips at first seem made of clay as they bruise themselves upon the shapely muscles of his chest. And afterward, as they lie abed together, sweating and seemingly sated as one, their limbs still intertwined. As they share a crystal goblet of some rare stellian vintage he has selected and chilled to her satisfaction, as he somehow hangs without seeming to hang upon her every precious syllable, each of her priceless gestures, as he cradles her safe and secure within his arms without ever seeming to possess her, the shallow illusion of her life once again complete. She praises the undying depths of their love. He holds her still more closely, the dizzying heights of their passion. His hand softly caresses her breast. And she speculates at length on the child she has decided they will have when they return to Earth. A girl? A boy? Of how very perfect and forever a child, it will no doubt be. Looking Glass, noun, a vitreous plane upon which to display a fleeting show for man's disillusion given. That's from Ambrose Bierce's satirical 1911 book, The Devil's Dictionary, which is a fun, totally cynical, snarky, and often ultra-witty revision of the boring old lame standard dictionary. Here are a few more. Conservative. Noun. A statesman who is enamored of existing evils, as distinguished from the liberal, who wishes to replace them with others. Lawyer. Noun. One skilled in circumvention of the law. Cabbage. A familiar kitchen vegetable, about as large and as wise as a man's head. Selfish, devoid of consideration for the selfishness of others. Pedestrian, the variable and audible part of the roadway for an automobile. And misfortune, the kind of fortune that never misses. Check out more at thedevilsdictionary.com. So why do we do it? What makes us assume that we taste so stinking good that the monster in the closet can't help himself but slaver over us all day until nighttime slash dinner time? Steve Covey, author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, says, We simply assume that the way we see things is the way that they really are, or the way they should be, and our attitudes and behaviors grow out of these assumptions. 
Seek first to understand, then to be understood. The problem with this advice is that, well, you might find out that you're not really a dinosaur, which is unequivocally the most disappointing conclusion an existential crisis could possibly result in. The emperor having no clothes is one thing, but the emperor not being an allosaurus? Psh, give me tax accounting any day. So here's that promo for 19 Nocturne Boulevard. This is 911. What is the nature of your emergency? I've been robbed! Please list the items in question. My latte is only a single! You're calling from a cell phone, aren't you? Yes. In your car? Yes. And there's definitely not a dollar fifty worth of sprinkles on top! They totally ripped me off! You drive a blue BMW this year's model, don't you? What? License plate XYZ PDQ? Uh... Yeah? For frivolous waste of 911 operator time, you are removed from the gene pool. Don't let this happen to you. Make sure your emergency is a real emergency. Wishful thinking, eh? But wishful thinking is the root of good fiction. For more good fiction, check out 19 Nocturne Boulevard at www.19nocturneboulevard.com. That's 19 Nocturne Boulevard. Well, that was different. And our kick-ass donor of the week is... Eric Dewar, a paleontologist and biology professor living in Boston. Paleontologist. Man, why does everyone get to have a cooler job than me? I don't get to study prehistoric bones or make up words like cybertext or wear yellow polka dot underpants. <sighs> I'm so depressed. Won't somebody give me a hot robot to love? Thanks, Eric. We appreciate the support. Be sure to let us know first if you find any cool new thunder lizards out there for Drabble News, because <laughs> we both know that real scientific journals are boring. 100-character Twitfic winner this week is a newbie who shows a lot of promise in the field of one- and two-sentence stories. Mox. Congrats there, Mox. Just twat out your story, The Plan, out on our Twitter feed. Everybody else, follow us out there yonder if you aren't yet. We're fun to have around. I say it every week, but only because I have a deep-rooted passion for panhandling. Help us out. Donate to the show so we can offset the cost of paying these great authors for their work week to week. One of the best things you can do, short of whimsically dropping a thousand bucks into our podcast, is to subscribe for only five bucks a month. You can find a button that will allow you to do that on our website, www.drabblecast.org. Between weekly shows here and sporadic episodes on our Drabblecast B-Sides podcast, that comes out to less than a buck a show. And that's pretty reasonable, huh? Even Kanye West is all like, yeah, Beyonce, I I'm happy for you, and I'm gonna let you have your minute, but Drabblecast has got the best podcast in the world. In the world! It's true, he, he said that. And as always, you can spread the word. Write us a review on iTunes or Podcast Alley or a truck stop bathroom stall, wherever. We'd be much obliged. Well, hey, that's our show. The Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but share it all you like. We'll see you next week. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, clothes and toys. You can't go wrong with clothes and toys.
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.